You're listening to a sermon from Midtown Presbyterian Church in Phoenix, Arizona. If you'd like to learn more about Midtown and its ministry, please visit us at midtownpres.org or follow us on Instagram or Facebook. Exodus 20.12 Honor your father and mother. Proverbs 3, 9 through 10. Honor the Lord with your substance and with the first fruits of all your produce. Proverbs 14, 31. Whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker, but he who is generous to the needy honors him. Isaiah 43, 20. The wild animals will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches, for I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people, like we've been experiencing this weekend. Water is in the desert. 1 Corinthians 6, 18 through 20, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, which you have from God and that you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. Therefore, honor your body. Romans 2, 10, glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, both to the Jew and to the Greek, for God shows no partiality. Romans 12, 10, outdo one another in showing honor. 1 Peter 2, 17, honor everyone, love the family of believers, fear God, honor the emperor. 1 Timothy 5, 3, honor widows. Hebrews 13, 4, let marriage be held in honor by all. Hebrews 13, 18, pray for us. We are sure that we have a good conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. Revelation 5, 13 through 14, then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them singing to the one seated on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Anyone noticing a trend here? The Bible seems to think that this whole honor thing is pretty dang important. In those texts I just read, honor is mentioned as the foundation of humanity's relationship to God, so healthy spiritual life. But it's also a practice that should fuel our interactions with every type of human, something that should flow through our marriages, our families, our neighborhoods, our nations. It's even central to our shared life with the ecology around us. According to the Bible, if we want to live as full and free people, spiritually, emotionally, physically, ecologically, then we have to be people whose lives are shot through with honor. As Minister John Tyson put it, honor is the operating system of God. But the truth is, if we fast forward to our lives today, most of us, when we hear that word, have no conceptual framework for what it really means. And I say most of us because that means me, oftentimes. I don't know if before this week, digging in honor, I could have given you a succinct and helpful definition for what honor looked like. I think most of us, if we were put on the spot, we'd be like, well... Maybe we think of like caricatures, like medieval knights, right, fighting each other for honor. If you're like my wife and you were raised on Disney, you think of Mulan, right? The, the please bring honor to us all song, right? And both of those things, they're caricatures and they're really culturally distant for us. Medieval knights fighting against the Huns don't quite resonate in the U.S. in the same way. And that's because in America, we don't really do this honor thing very much. The closest we get is something like Mother's Day most times throughout the year. We set aside a day for our moms. You know, those women who went through excruciating pain just to make sure all of us exist in the world. And we go to great measures to say thank you by giving them greeting cards or phone calls, right? (laughs) Greeting cards that say, Mom, thank you, I love you, I literally couldn't live without you. My relationship with you started with pain. Sorry nothing's changed. I love you. I honor you. Father's Day is another one of the attempts we make, but dads already know they get the short stick on that one most times. 
Veterans Day, we honor our veterans who died to serve our country, but usually we honor them by grilling some burgers and drinking beer out of cans with American flags draped around them. Like, that's kind of the way that we honor people. And then, if you turn to the church or Christianity, you still don't often see pictures. I grew up in the church. I rarely missed Sunday school, and I don't remember one teaching, one sermon, one instruction on what healthy honor looked like. And then, when we do talk about honor in the church, oftentimes it's misused or abused to elevate people in power. That's a common thing, that we honor the leader or the charismatic speaker in front of us. There's a pastor friend I know named John who talked about this recently. He visited a, a massive, well-known, charismatic megachurch. We're talking thousands of people, multiple services, massive worship, the whole nine yards. And the Sunday that he visited, during the service, but before the sermon, there was a pastor who went up to the front. It wasn't the main pastor. It was just another pastor that worked there. And he talked about the importance of giving. And then he said, today we're doing our annual tradition of an honor offering, specifically for Mr. and Mrs., whoever they were, pastors. And he said to everyone, dig deep. Dig deep in your pockets. Give as much as you can. We want to honor our pastors in front of us. And my friend John started to do the math in the room. Remember, this is a huge church. Between all their services, we're talking dozens of thousands of people. And second, my friend John also knew these pastors. He knew that they already took a pretty substantial salary from the church. And then third, this was a Pentecostal church, which some of you in the room are like, that doesn't mean anything to me. Others of you in the room are like, those people give a lot. I know. And so my friend's first thought in this church was, how do I get a job here? No, not really. His first thought was kind of sickness in his stomach. Because he looked around and he did the math and he said, well, this amount of giving, whatever this is, this honor offering, above and beyond their salary that they already took from the church, it was more than he would make in a year as a pastor. And then the service went on, the senior pastor came up preached a great sermon, music went on, and then after that, the same guy came up and said, we're going to do another honor offering for senior pastor, Mr. and Mrs. Everyone, dig deep, give as much as you can, honor our pastors up front. This is your chance. In that setting, the word honor was turned into a tool to reinforce spiritual and organizational power and a way to make people's money turn us exorbitantly wealthy. Everywhere we look, friends, in our culture and the church, we're missing healthy language to describe what honor really looks like, which means we're missing a central practice from the scriptures about what it looks like to live healthy, whole lives. And so my hope today is to explore what honor really is and why it matters in our lives. It's mentioned hundreds of times in this text. What is it and why does it matter? I want to give our community a framework for how we practice honor to one another, towards one another how we extend honor in our lives and in every part of what we do. With me? Okay. So I think it's a, a good starting point to actually outline a definition of honor because that's one of the things that for me in my life I haven't really been able to do much. So uh, let's start here. In the biblical imagination, the word honor means to esteem or to hold great respect for someone or to see and express the value of someone or something. In the New Testament, uh, the Greek word that we often translate honor is often used in financial settings. So to honor meant to recognize the value of something and then to allow that value to dictate the way that you treat that thing. Uh, we actually borrow this language in many of our financial institutions as well today, our modern credit cards, for instance, right? If a credit card is accepted at a store, they say they honor that credit card, right? They recognize that that has value. And if your credit card doesn't go through, what's it say? Do not honor. We do not honor that. Something about the value of that credit card is no longer accepted. 
And so if you translate that definition over to our relationships, relationships with God or others of the world, honor is the recognition of the value, the contribution, and the importance of others. Honor is the recognition of the value, the contribution, and the importance of others. And that concept of honor in the Bible is directly connected to the concept of glory, which is another one of those religious words that we don't often define. We say it, we think about it maybe, but we don't really define it well. Glory is the inherent value that something or someone has. So God in the Bible, for instance, is depicted as having glory. God has value. God is good. God is just. God is loving. God has glory. And human beings have glory. They're made in the image of God, which means all humans, independent of what they've done or who they are, have inherent dignity, value. And even creation itself in the Bible echoes forth the glory of God. Creation has glory. So in God's created world, glory is the inherent value of things. And honor is the way that we recognize and esteem the value in those things. Glory is the inherent value. Honor is the way we recognize and esteem that value. And the scriptures say that when all of creation does this rightly, when all of creation honors rightly, then we will find peace in life and flourishing. There's just one problem. Most of us don't honor very well. We live in a time today where notions of inherent glory, inherent dignity and value, and notions of honor are mostly non-existent. In fact, sociologists, researchers, and journalists are referring to America today as a dishonor culture. Our present moment is characterized by a lack of affirmation, value, or of dignity, and extending it to others. Now, there's a recent study from the National Academy of Sciences that gave some data behind this. In their research, they found that people in the US have a trait called motive attribution asymmetry, which is scientific gobbledygook. Doesn't matter to you, but here's what they mean. In the US today, most people assume that their perspective, their tribe, is inherently good and moral, and therefore has value. And the other, the perspective of the other and the tribe of the other, is not moral and therefore does not have value. They can be discarded or pushed away. And so our culture, we compare ourselves to someone else, we judge them based upon their behaviors, we categorize them, and then we distance ourselves from them. And in that distance, we're able to actually lower their value in our heads and our hearts. That's dishonor. There's a philosopher named Arthur Schopenhauer who called this sort of dishonor the unsullied conviction of the worthlessness of another. And I know when we hear that, the immediate instinct was, well, yeah, those people out there do that. Right? But I, I don't do that. I don't have that in my life. Well, let's think about it for a second. Look at our politics. What do you think about the people who voted differently than you? You think they're awesome, right? Sane, logical, smart, witty, compassionate, those people. No shot, right? That's not how we deal with people we disagree with in our culture. We live in what journalist Arthur C. Brooks called an outrage industrial complex. It caters to one ideological side, and then it quotes, creates a species of addiction by feeding our desire to believe that we are completely right and the other side is made up of knaves and fools. It strokes our own biases while affirming our worst assumptions about those who disagree with us. Ugh. Right? And maybe some of you in the room are like, well, I'm not very political. Okay, well, let's look at our music. Everyone in this room loves a good diss track, let's be honest, right? There are people who have built careers off of dissing others. Eminem, Ice Cube, Tupac, all of them have built their careers off lyrics and songs that dishonor they don't, those they don't like or disagree with. And even if you're not a hip-hop fan, our breakup songs do this all the time. 
It's not just that the other person does us wrong, it's that they, in some fundamental way, are less than us or worse than us. We can disvalue or dishonor them. You guys remember the classic All-American Reject song? Gives you hell? You guys remember that one? This is the chorus of gives you hell. When you see my face, hope it gives you hell. When you walk my way, hope it gives you hell. If you find a man that's worth a damn and treats you well, then he's a fool, you're just as well, hope it gives you hell. Millions of views on YouTube. That person who broke up with me, they are fundamentally at their core a fool, an idiot, worthless. Or what about our TV? Why do you guys think we love reality TV so much? Bachelor, Kardashians, don't pretend like you don't like it. I know you people. <laughs> Come on. Why do we love those shows? Because they're scandalous. And we love a good scandal. But there's often something subtle underneath our love of a good scandal. There's this desire to make ourselves feel better through comparison to those people. When we watch those shows, what do we often say? I'd never do something like that. I'd never say something like that. These people are just so shallow, so naive, it's laughable. That's what scandal does in us. It allows us, it gives us permission to dishonor those people. There's a brilliant social psychologist named Jonathan Haidt who wrote about this obsession years ago. He put it this way, he said, scandal is great entertainment because it allows people to feel contempt, a moral emotion that gives feelings of moral superiority while asking nothing in return. With contempt, you don't need to right the wrong, as with anger, or flee the scene, as with fear or disgust. And best of all, contempt is made to share. Stories about the moral failings of others are among the most common kinds of gossip. They're a staple of talk radio, and they offer a ready way for people to show that they share a common moral orientation. Tell an acquaintance a cynical story that ends with both of you smirking and shaking your heads, and voila, you've got a bond. We'll stop smirking. One of the most universal pieces of advice from across cultures and eras is that we are all hypocrites. And in our condemnation of others' hypocrisy, we only compound our own. Welcome to church, everybody. We constantly practice dishonor in our world, and it's actively killing us, friends. According to the American Psychological Association, actions of dishonor like this create anxiety, exacerbate depression, and amplify feelings of loneliness in our world. One of the primary reasons we're in the midst of a mental health crisis in the U.S., is because we dishonor one another. What the world most needs right now, friends, is not more brilliant people or more gifted people. We need more honoring people. We need words and actions and communities who affirm the essential value and dignity of not just others, but of our creation and of God. And so that's why today, in our last installment in this series we're calling Character Matters, we're going to explore the concept of honor through a story that we get right at the end of 1 Samuel. And this story shows us the dangers of dishonor and the healing power of honor. It shows us what sort of transformation can come into our lives when we become people of honor in a culture of dishonor. So if you have a Bible, open it with me, friends, uh, to 1 Samuel chapter 31. This is the very last chapter in 1 Samuel. We're going to read the first 10 verses of chapter 31, and then we're going to look just forward at 2 Samuel uh, chapter one, we're going to read verses 17 through 27 there. So kind of a moving pages this morning. Uh, starting in 1 Samuel 31, verse 1. Now the Philistines fought against Israel. And the men of Israel fled before the Philistines, and many fell on Mount Gilboa. The Philistines overtook Saul and his sons. And the Philistines killed Jonathan and Abinadab and Malkishua, 
the sons of Saul. And the battle pressed hard upon Saul. The archers found him and he was badly wounded by them. Then Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and thrust me through with it so that these uncircumcised may not come and thrust me through and make sport of me. Read, dishonor me. But his armor bearer was unwilling for he was terrified. So Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. And when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. So Saul and his three sons and his armor bearer and all his men died together on the same day. When the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley and those beyond the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they forsook their towns and fled. And the Philistines came and occupied them. The next day, when the Philistines came to strip the dead, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. And so they cut off his head. They stripped off his armor, and they sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the houses of their idols and to the people. They put his armor in the temple of Astarte, and they fastened his body to the wall of Bethshan. Now, 2 Samuel, verse 17. David intoned this lamentation over Saul and his son, Jonathan. He ordered that the song of the bow be taught to the people of Judah. It is written in the book of Jashar. He said, your glory, O Israel, lies slain upon the high places. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath, proclaim it not in the streets of Ashkelon, or the daughters of the Philistines will rejoice, the daughters of the uncircumcised will exult. You mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew or rain upon you, nor bounteous fields. For there, the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul, anointed with oil no more. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan did not turn back, nor the sword of Saul return empty. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely. In life and in death, they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. O daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you with crimson and luxury, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. Jonathan lies slain upon your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Greatly beloved were you to me. Your love to me was wonderful, passing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen, and the weapons of the war perished. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Cemeteries make great classrooms. It's true. Have you ever walked through a cemetery? Spent time really reflecting on who has come and who has gone, forces you to face some hard realities that oftentimes in our culture we don't want to face. Death is one of those things that we often push away or deny. We don't talk about it, we don't think about it, we literally don't look at it a lot of the time. There's a nurse I know, not the one I'm married to, but a nurse I know who once told me that when people were getting close to death on her unit, the hospital informed them that they had to move that person to the farthest corners of the hospital so that fewer people would have to watch them die. We don't want to do this in our culture. We don't want to look at it. We don't want to face it. But the Bible never does that for us. Do you notice that? Think about all the great characters we like to remember in these pages. Their life is certainly talked about, but almost all of their deaths are described as well. Adam, Abraham, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Joshua, Samson, Eli, David, Jesus. All of their deaths are mentioned in the Bible. Why? I think the Bible actually tells us in Psalm 90. Teach us to count our days. Teach us to know our mortality 
that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Friends, recognition of our finitude, of our finiteness, is often the place where wisdom begins. It forces us to ask important questions. Questions like, what sort of life do we want to live? What does it mean to live well? How do I want to be remembered? Death is always teaching us. And that's exactly what we see in 1 Samuel 31 here. Unfolded in these pages is the tragic death of Saul. To this point in the story, we've been following him for about 22 chapters. He started as this promising young man. He was tall, he was strong, he was handsome. He was exactly the sort of person you'd want to make king. And that's what happens. He becomes king. He's anointed by Samuel. And at first, he shows some real promise. But quickly, the pressures of leadership start to expose his deepest flaws, which is what leadership often does. We learn in the story that he's insecure. He's impatient. He lacks trust in God. He's deeply prideful. And eventually, when a new leader named David shows up on the scene and starts to experience success and praise, Saul only gets worse. He becomes envious, and his envy then devolves into rage. He's filled with wrath, and he he refuses to acknowledge any of it. He refuses to name it and try to change it. Instead, he's overcome by it. And over the last few chapters, leading up to chapter 31 here, we hear Saul is constantly attempting to dishonor David by killing him. He's chasing him all around the Israeli countryside. He sees David not as a leader to be developed, but as a threat to him. David is not gifted and valuable. He is valueless and worthless. He dishonors David. And that dishonor leads him down, down, down to chapter 31 here. His death is the culmination of a life of dishonor. And it's put in front of us so that we can think about dishonor and honor in our own lives. And it's actually contrasted with David's response to Saul in the lament we read. One of these is giving us a picture of what happens when we dishonor others. The other is giving us a picture of what honor can do to heal it. And so we see three different things in these two passages here. We see, first, that dishonor destroys value and honor instills value. Dishonor destroys value, honor instills value. Notice the dynamics at play in Saul's decision to kill himself here. Why does he choose that? Well, because he knows that the Philistines will come and make sport of him. That is, he knows that the Philistines are going to come and dishonor his body. The dishonored culture that he lives in, the dishonoring culture that he lives in, is what causes him to go ahead and dishonor himself. He chooses to fall upon his own sword and accept the identity that the world has given him by dishonoring him. Dishonor destroys his value. And that's what it does in our own time today, friends. Dishonor always leads to a world in which we have lowered value in ourselves. We believe the identities that others who have dishonored us have given us. You ever thought about that? How often the negative comment, one negative comment from someone can send you spiraling? You could get a thousand positive comments, but that one negative comment, you internalize it, and all of a sudden you live out of that new broken identity. You live out of the dishonor that they extended you. Friends, when we tell others that they lack value or dignity or worth in any way, we ultimately give them a message that they can go ahead and internalize and devalue themselves. There's a friend of mine I was speaking with recently on this exact dynamic. She grew up in a family environment where she was regularly dishonored. So when she was young, she was taught that her value was primarily in her physical beauty. And so she never really grew up with a sense of intrinsic worth beyond her body. 
And then slowly, because of that identity that she was given from her family, that dishonor that she was given, she started to make some unfortunate decisions, some bad choices in her life. And those bad choices led family members to say she was even less, of less value than she was before. She had family members tell her she's going to hell. She's worthless for her decisions. And so her responses to people started to become more and more dishonorable. She said, well, I'm receiving dishonor. I'm just going to sling it right back at you. I'm going to isolate. I'm going to pull myself away from relationships. I'm going to dishonor myself, and I'm going to dishonor you. That's what dishonor does. When we reduce the value of others, it's a message that gets internalized, and it's a catalyst for a world of cynicism and depression and shame and insecurity. I was thinking about it this week for myself. I can trace many of my deepest insecurities and wounds back to dishonoring things that people said about me. I imagine you might be able to as well. Dishonor is like a septic tank that leaks into our water supply. It poisons all of us and it leads to a world of constant discouragement and pain. But honor, on the other hand, instills value. Notice in David's lament what he says about Saul. He calls Saul beloved, lovely, swift, and strong. Which is shocking if you read the narrative to this point, because Saul has been none of those things to David. He's been chasing him around. He's been attempting to murder him. How is David able to say this, right? You'd think that David's response would be like, man, I'm so glad that scumbag's dead. Let's finally start to talk crap now that he's gone. David refuses to do that. He refuses to define Saul by those characteristics, and he instead chooses to identify the goodness in Saul, the marks of God's good creative work in and through him. That is what honor has the power to do in the world of dishonor. It has the power to name the inherent value of the other person in such a way that no one, not even our enemies, not even the least in our world, can be overlooked. There's no one that you can throw out. There's no one that's disposable. There's no one that can be disregarded if we live with the type of honor that the Bible commands us to. No one's value gets destroyed in that way. The Apostle Paul picks up on this idea in the first century church when he's speaking to them. He writes this letter to them. We call it 1 Corinthians today. And he compares the group that is the church, these followers of Jesus, to the body. He says, you guys function like a body. And the way that you function is really, really unique. He says this, 1 Corinthians 12. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again, the head say to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the members of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And those members of the body we think are less honorable, we clothe with greater honor. And our less respectable members are treated with greater respect. What Paul is saying is that every type of person, no matter what they've done, no matter where they've come from, has inherent dignity. And the more that they're overlooked, the more that they're stepped on by the world, the more we're going to value them. A question for you all. Do you guys have toes? Yeah? Everybody have toes in here? I was, it's going to be a bummer if somebody didn't. I'm glad you all have toes. Everyone in this room has toes. Follow-up question. Have you ever woken up in the morning and said, toes, I honor you. I so appreciate you, toes. I love you. No, right? We don't wake up that way. But have you ever stubbed your toe? You ever broken your toe? Recently, one person in the room has broken their toe. That might be a, a, little, uh, a little fresh still. <laughs> when you stub your toe, when you break your toe, all of a sudden you realize, man, my toes are valuable. It is painful to step. It is painful to sit. It is painful to do anything with my toes. I need to honor my toes better. I need to honor these 10 little piggies. They matter to me. 
Now, what if we went through the rest of our lives and thought of every interaction with every other human in the same way? What if we went through the rest of our lives and honored every person, considered them of the deepest worth and value, someone who could bless us and who we could bless? What if we honored people? What might it do to their value? What might it do to their lives? A few years back, I was at uh, Mayo Clinic. I was visiting my dad. He was sick in the hospital at the time. And on the elevator ride down, I had one of the first celebrity run-ins that I've ever had in my life. Uh, we ran into Mel Gibson. I rode an elevator with Mel Gibson. Yeah, see, everyone's like, oh, amazing, right? Because it's a celebrity and he's in some movies. So we're walking down. His dad was in the hospital at the time as well. We're, we're riding down in the elevator, and I'm like, Miguel, or Mel Gibson's kind of short, so I can kind of see over him. I'm like, that's Mel Gibson. I look at my mom in the corner. She's like, that's Mel Gibson. <laughs> can you believe Oh, my gosh. We're like ready to honor Mel Gibson. This guy, we have no idea, like his character. This is before a lot of the public stuff about Mel Gibson came out as well. <laughs> so we have no idea who this guy actually is, but we can't believe it. We're just like honoring Mel Gibson. That's how most people deal with celebrities or athletes when they see them. We honor them because we think they have special value. What if we treated every person the same way? What if when somebody walked in the room, we're like, that's Stephanie, mother of three, amazing, right? <laughs> Incredible. She's here. I'm so happy. That's Joe, single dude, great sense of humor. I love Joe. I honor Joe. What if we received one another in that way? As gifts, as eternally significant beings, what might it change about our world? All right, Midtown, go ahead right now. Head up, look around the room. Make actual eye contact with people. Yeah, do the awkward like smile and laugh to make it less awkward, right? Every person you look at in this room has eternal dignity and value, is a beloved son or daughter of the Most High God. And they have gifts of vibrancy that's gonna take a whole lifetime to fully grasp. They are small batch, handcrafted humans. As Paul put it in Romans 12, outdo one another in how you honor each other. And in doing so, you will instill powerful value in every person. As the great C.S. Lewis put it in his sermon, The Weight of Glory, there are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. So that's the first thing we see in this text. Dishonor destroys value, but honor instills it. Second thing we see, dishonor amplifies conflict and honor heals Oh, this is great. Sergio, you're honoring people with flowers right now. This is amazing. Perfect. Sermon illustration. Dishonor amplifies conflict. Honor heals conflict. Now remember, Saul's dishonor of David to this point has only led to violence and destruction, and ultimately violence and destruction against himself. Dishonor only exacerbates the cycle of violence. But David, his honoring of Saul puts an end to that cycle once and for all. It opens the door for a different way of leading in the community. It opens the door for a different type of kingship. David will not lead like Saul. He will refuse to dishonor. It ends the violence that we've seen throughout 1 Samuel, at least for now. And that's what honor does, friends. Dishonor will only ever create more violence and destruction. Honor will always open up the possibility for a new reality. There's a great uh, story of a black jazz musician named Daryl Davis that I think illustrates this well. One night, Daryl, in 1983, was playing music at a place called the Silver Dollar Lounge in Maryland. And afterwards, he was approached by a white man who said he had never heard a black man play jazz that well. He'd never heard a black man play jazz like Jerry Lee Lewis, who was a famous white jazz musician. And Daryl actually explained to the man that he knew Jerry Lee Lewis, 
and that Jerry Lee Lewis learned how to play jazz from black jazz musicians. He's like, he's one of my buddies. And this white guy's like, no way. No, white people invented jazz. And so Daryl's like, let's sit down. Let's have a beer. So they have a drink together. They're talking about jazz and music. And then suddenly it comes up that this guy's a part of the KKK, the Ku Klux Klan. But Daryl, yeah, we know what it means. You're right. right. Daryl, in that moment, doesn't discard of him. He doesn't dishonor him. He says, hey, let's keep hanging out. Let's have some more conversations. And over the next few meetings, Daryl revealed lots of things to this man that he never knew. And soon thereafter, the guy left the KKK. And so Daryl said, you know, this is an interesting idea. I'm going to keep doing this. Over the rest of his music career, he sought to befriend as many KKK members as he could. And over 30 years, he says that more than 200 people left their hoods and cloaks behind. That's what honor does. Daryl honored the inherent value of his neighbor even when they were actively dishonoring and dehumanizing him. And it opened the door to a new possibility that never would have existed, and it helped tear down one of the most violent conflicts of the 20th century. Friends, honor is the only way a safe space can be created to navigate conflict well. It's the only way. It's the only way any healthy relationship can exist is if we honor one another. Any marriage, any friendship, it has to start with a recognition of the inherent value of that person. I mean, imagine if every time we navigated conflict with one another, we started with honor. Imagine when we came into conflict, we'd say, look, I know there's something between us. I know there's some sort of conflict between us. But before we address that, which we should, before we do, I just want to make sure you know I value you. You have so, so much dignity. I care about our relationship. I care about what you can bring to me, and I care about what I can bring to you. And however we navigate this conflict, I want to make sure that we know we value each other. Imagine what that might do in our conflict with one another. It would disarm it. So that's the second thing we learn here, friends. Dishonor amplifies conflict, but honor heals it. And finally, the third thing we learn. Dishonor diminishes our capacity for blessing, and honor opens us up to blessing. Notice how vile the Philistine dishonor of Saul's body is in the passage. They cut off his head, they hang up his body in the temple of their God. Really ugly, it actually was a common ancient Near Eastern practice in times of war. And it was symbolic. It served to show that the Philistine way, their religion, their tribe, their gods were greater, and that Israel and Saul and their God was worthless, useless, valueless. It was a way of dishonoring those people. It diminished their significance at all. There's a theologian named David Atkinson who writes about this. He said, to desecrate dead bodies is to deny the significance of their life, which is, in turn, to deny God's creative activity. That's what's happening here. They're desecrating that body to deny that it has any value at all. And in doing that, the Philistines are actually cutting themselves off from any possible blessing that they might have from Israel or Saul or the people. They are dishonoring him, and that dishonor prevents them from living in relationship with God. And over the course of the story, you find things don't go super well for the Philistines. It's cutting themselves off, themselves off from God's goodness. Now, for most of us in this room, our dishonor is not going to look like yielding a sword against others. If it leads to that for you, first, why do you have a sword? Second, come talk to me, please. But even if we're not yielding a physical sword, our dishonoring words will still cut others and they will cut us off from the beauty of God's creativity and blessing.
blessing. When we belittle others, when we gossip about others, when we put others down and build ourselves up, we diminish their value and we prevent ourselves from receiving what God might bring through them. There's actually a great example in the New Testament that describes this in Jesus' life. Mark chapter 6. It's right near the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Jesus has been teaching and healing all over the ancient world, and he's traveling back to his hometown. And he starts to teach. He starts to heal there. And people in his hometown are like, hey, wait, we know this guy. And you'd think that they would welcome him with open arms, but they don't. Instead, coming back to his hometown, we learn that they only dishonor him. They say, wait, hold on. Isn't this Mary's son? You know Mary who was pregnant by the Holy Spirit? Isn't, isn't this maybe a son out of wedlock? Isn't this maybe a scandalous son, a son worthy of dishonor? Isn't this the carpenter, the one who works with his hands, the manual labor guy? They constantly give all of these phrases and digs to dishonor Jesus. And Jesus' response to them in the story, with sadness, it's heartbreaking, he says, prophets are not without honor except in their hometown. And then the next line in the passage, it's tragic. It says, he could not do any miracles there. He could not bless them with miracles. And it throws one more in, line in that says, except that he lay his hands on a few sick people and cured them, which is hilarious. Like, that's a small thing for Jesus. Like, he was really limited. He just cured a few people. But the point, the point comes through. Dishonor is cutting them off from experiencing the miraculous work of God in their life. Dishonor is turning off the tap of Jesus' life-giving power, his grace, his peace. They can't receive it. That's what dishonor does. When we dishonor others, we prevent ourselves from receiving the blessing that God might bring to us through them. But when David honors in this passage, his lament does something different. By naming the parts of Saul's life that were healthy and good, He's actually able to experience and receive the ways that God blessed him and the people through Saul, even in the midst of a lot of pain. He's able to see that God uniquely created Saul to bless others, and it opens him up to what God did through Saul, even amidst all of the bad. Honor opens him up to receive blessing. Friends, when we honor others, even those who are really difficult to honor, we and the world ultimately get access to everything they carry. We get wisdom. We get peace, we get service and passion, art and creativity, prophetic ability, healing, hospitality, friendship. Honor instills value in all people in such a way that it opens us up to experience what God has created them to be and receive their life in us. Which means our honoring has real transformative power. It can open up the world to God's blessing. We have way more power than we think in our words. Proverbs 18.21 puts it this way, death and life are in the power of the tongue. Your words of honor have the power to bring death or life. What we do with our language matters. We can dishonor people and bind them into a valueless identity, or we can honor them and release them into a destiny of belovedness and blessing. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Name the truth of who that person is in God and then walk with them into that reality together. Parents in the room, when you speak to your kids and honor them, you are opening them and yourselves up to the way that God is blessing them and blessing the world through them. You're opening yourselves up to their gifts, to how they're uniquely wired to bring life and healing. Spouses, the words you speak to one another have the power to shape you into the images of Christ's self-giving love 
as a witness to the world. Your words have power. Everyone in the room, the words you speak to your neighbor, to your coworker, to your friend, to your barista, to the man experiencing homelessness, to the people who walk in in the middle of church, to the person who annoyed you yesterday, those words have the power to unlock in them their God-given value and catalyze them into a different sort of life. In a world of dishonor, that changes the world. And that all sounds great, but we live in broken relationships. It's hard to do this, especially with folks who have dishonored us. And David does this through lament, through a poem. Not all of us are poets. So how do we do this, right? Like what, what can we do to actually honor our neighbors? So I want to close with just some tips, three different approaches that we can take to our neighbors in order to honor them well. First, we need to become curious. So often our dishonor comes when we assume we already know the whole story which is a lie. We don't. I've been married to a woman for six years. I do not know the whole story yet. I'll let you know when I do. We are constantly being opened up to more and more of someone's story. We're constantly learning and growing, and so we need to become curious, not people who have them figured out. We don't have all the facts. So one way to honor people is by being curious about stuff like their story. Every person you interact with has a context, somewhere they've come from. How can you move from being judgmental of their behavior to being curious about what they bring into your relationship? And what about their passion? Be curious about their passion. This is one way to really get to know someone. What's the thing that gets them out of bed in the morning? What makes them tick? What gets them excited? What makes their eyes light up and their heart burn? God often places those sorts of things in our lives so that we could use those passions to bless others. Be curious about their passions. Be curious about their losses. What have they had to give up in their life? What have they lost in their life? Be curious about their gifts. What specific ways have they been wired? How can you experience those gifts? How can you encourage them in those gifts? Be curious about their future. What are their hopes and dreams? What do they want to be in five years, 10 years, 20 years? How could you encourage them in that? How could you walk with them in that? How could you name that in them? That's the first thing. Become curious. Story, loss, gifts, future, passion. The second thing we can do, focus on the little stuff. Honor is oftentimes less about grand gestures and more about intentional and heartfelt action. Remember, all David did was write a poem here. That was the way that he worked it out. It wasn't some huge, grand endeavor. It was a genuine one that cut to the heart. So think about the little things in your life. Speak words of value over someone. Write someone a letter or a text or a note. Praise people in public. Give someone a gift, small or big. Make eye contact with people, even with acquaintances. Make eye contact, learn their name. Place someone else's preference above your own. And then finally, third, friends, we live in Christ. We have a gift that empowers us as Christians to do this work. It is the gift of Jesus. Remember what Christ did when he came. He showed up and honored people that no one else would honor that everyone else discarded and dishonored. Fishermen, sex workers, tax collectors, day laborers, sidebars, those who were sick. He honored those people, and what happened through those people? The world changed. He saw something in them that no one else saw. He named it, he called it out, he walked with them, and he has transformed the world because of it. You and I are sitting in this room because Jesus chose to honor the people who were dishonored. He chose to honor every one of us. 
And Jesus promises that when we name him as our Lord and Savior, when we receive his honoring of us in our lives, we get the same spirit that he had to honor others. And we can see differently, we can live differently, we can act differently because of Christ. So friends, to close, draw near to Jesus. That's how we honor him. Pray with him, spend time with him in the Gospels. See how he does it and follow him in that work because when we do that, I am confident, and the Bible is confident in one thing. The world is going to be radically transformed. Let's pray, friends.